With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobhana Xavier, and I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining me today. In today's episode, we are joined by the editors of Producing Islams in Canada, a Knowledge, Positionality, and Politics, Dr. Amelie Baras, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Science at York University, Dr. Jennifer Selby, an Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies and an Affiliate Member, of the Department of Gender Studies at Memorial University, and Dr. Melanie Adrian, an associate professor in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. The new edited volume brings together 29 interdisciplinary scholars of all levels to engage and reflect on how Islam and Muslims in Canada have been studied from the 1970s to the present moment. Stemming out of a workshop that brought together many of the scholars, the contributors were asked to reflect on diverse approaches to the study of Islam in Canada that center gender, race, religion, class, and much more. This edited volume is an important contribution to the field of Islam and Muslim studies in Canada as it provides a necessary introspective survey of the state of the field while attending to regional diversities of Muslim communities and also um, contains wonderful interviews with several senior scholars in the field. It also introduces disciplinary approaches to the study of Islam and Muslims. The scholarship here will be of interest to any scholar and student who's thinking of Muslim presence in the global West, not just in Canada, while chapters that attend to methodological reflections, such as the sections on positionality, will be particularly insightful pedagogical tools to utilize in methods courses, while other chapters also attend to um, how certain projects are funded and others are not, which lead to the knowledge production of any study, but in this particular case on Muslims and Islam in Canada. In our conversation today, today, the editors and I spoke about how this project emerged, the state of the field of Islam and Muslim studies in Canada, and of course, potential future trajectories that a new generation of scholars are are embarking upon, Um, questions around who produces knowledge on this area and what gets funded, um, which then of 
of course, informs the knowledge production and the knowledge that is consumed. And of course, nuances around um, nuances of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism, um, gendered Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism as well, and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Amelie, Jennifer, and Melanie about their new edited volume, Producing Islam in Canada, a Knowledge, Positionality, and Politics, which is published by the University of Toronto Press and just came out in 2021. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new edited volume, Producing Islams in Canada, on knowledge, positionality, and politics. How are you all doing? Very well. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah. Fabulously. <laughs> um, so happy to have you um, and have three of you um, together. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, we have a tradition on the New Books podcast to start with a little bit of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if we could hear a little bit about maybe uh, what led to this project and what led to actually your collaborating with each other. Um, Melanie, did you want to go first? Sure. So we have been working on this book since 2016 is actually when we started talking about it. Um, and then and then that led to the on the road, led us on the road to um, to the workshop, uh, the short grant, the workshop, uh, which then led to the to this volume. And uh, we uh, knew each other. Uh, we knew each other about each other's work and what we had done in the past. And I think we were all just really interested in thinking about what was happening in Canada specifically um, a- in terms of the study of Islam. Um, when did we start really uh, producing knowledge on Islam in Canada? Uh, what did it look like? We wanted to interrogate that question a little bit more. And so I think that's what really brought us together, that central question that actually drives the entire volume. Great. Jennifer, did you want to add? Yeah, thanks for asking. So for me, uh, some of these questions first emerged back in around 2014, 2015, when I was co-authoring a different book with Amelie and a different um, co-author, Lori Beeman, called in a book called Beyond Accommodation that came out in 2018. And so for that book, um, I well, together, we really wanted to see what had been written so far. And so started this bibliographical project that we then took up and continued on in the workshop and in this edited volume. And so it was really just a desire to not only undertake that literature review kind of amongst ourselves, but to engage and interpolate and um, think with other scholars about what was there and what wasn't there and why. Yeah. And I guess, I guess for me, uh, I think uh, Jennifer and Melanie have summed it uh, quite well. I think it's also related to um, the work that I had done in the past. And, and it was a reflection that started in, in Beyond Accommodation, the book that uh, we wrote with Jennifer and, and Laurie, where, where we, you know, I worked in the past a lot on, on Turkey and France and headscarf bands. And, and there had been a lot of, um, and we saw in 2014, 2015, a lot of scholarship on these questions around uh, uh, headscarf bands, Sharia debates in Ontario. And, and, and so the scholarship 
ships seem to be driven by policy in many ways as well and debates. And we were wondering, uh, so we wanted to, to reflect on that. What questions uh, do we tackle as scholars and have we tackled as scholars and, and more generally uh, scholars in Canada and what questions remain invisible and why and the politics around that? So, so, so that's also, uh, and I think that's a question that really drives the volume uh, as well to think about what's visible and what remains invisible and, and why. Yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I think the the service you've done for scholars on, you know, Islam and Muslims in Canada is immense, especially with this book, uh, the working bibliography that you have online. So I'm really excited to have this conversation and talk about kind of both the present and the future. Um, we should also probably um, say a little bit about where you're institutionally located um, and introduce yourselves in terms of maybe, um, yeah, that as well. Uh, so Emily, do you want to go first? Yeah, so, so I'm uh, actually located now at uh, York uh, University in Toronto uh, in the social science department, uh, but I, I, and I teach in the law and society program. So um, although I come from a background in political science, um, now most of my work uh, touches on the questions of law and religion. Uh, and, uh, and I've been at York uh, since 2015 or 2014, uh, but previously I was in Europe. So, uh, so I think uh, that sort of shapes my work in many ways because I have, uh, I, I, I tend to be to work in a with a comparative lens uh, and uh, and think about Canada comparatively as well yeah Fantastic. yeah um Melanie did you want to go next sure sure I'm in the department of law and legal studies at Carleton University and I really come at these issues from a, a, a legal anthropology perspective as well as uh, religious studies, um, even though I'm, a, I'm in a law department. So <laughs> I, I, do, I do a bit of everything. Yeah. Fantastic. Jennifer? And, yeah, and I'm at uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is uh, on the lens of the Beatuk and the Mi'kmaq. And I, yeah, I'm in a religious studies department and, um, you know, was hired to think about Islam and in Islam and Muslims in Canada, particularly. So it does it does uh, lend itself well to this project. But one of the things that I think is really exciting about kind of taking this snapshot on this topic, if you will, is that we really have been engaging with all kinds of scholars across disciplines. And so one of the things that we noted, I guess, one of the takeaways in our bibliographical project is that a lot of the a lot of the work is sociological, but readers can take a look at some of our graphs and see it's it's really astounding actually the number of different disciplines that have thought and written about this topic. Yeah, I think the interdisciplinarity of the scholarship and the scholars and the angles from which they're bringing um, um, their own lens to the study is, I think, fantastic. And um, we have quite a bit of an international audience. And so I think I wonder and I know this is a hard question because um, um, this is kind of the crux of what you're doing. But I mean, if for folks who haven't really thought about Canadian Islam or maybe are based in you know Europe you know, or um, the U.S., maybe what are some things that they should think about as we have this conversation of um, you know, Islam and Muslims in Canada? I know that's a big question. I don't know if somebody wants to tackle it, but... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I can say a little bit about it, but it's it's more that the book we've tried in the book because the book is really 
many of the chapters are specifically on questions of Islam and Muslims in Canada, but uh, we tried in the first section of the book to have scholars intervene um, in the discussion that are not actually uh, scholars uh, working in Canada or uh, on these questions in Canada. Uh, and to, to, to show that the questions we ask in the book about knowledge production are questions that actually uh, scholars working on Islam and Muslims everywhere and on other disciplines should actually be thinking and asking themselves about. And so we have a piece by Amir, uh, by Shirin Amir Mwazami, and she speaks about that uh, in that piece very elegantly about Europe and about uh, production of knowledge around Islam and Muslims in Europe, um, which really echoes the questions we asked throughout the volume. And there's also an um, interview with Lara Deeb, uh, who has worked on these questions uh, on the Middle East, uh, and she's located in the US. So her interview is mainly about uh, the US, but uh, and, uh, but it, again, it has, um, it echoes what we do in the rest of the book. So, so we're hoping that with this sort of first part of the volume, uh, the reader then can just see that the questions we're asking are actually questions that are valid to think about these questions, not only in Canada, but beyond. So I, we'll see, yeah. yeah. I would just add that to me, one of the interesting pieces is also to think not only about who are, what is Islam or who are Muslims in Canada, but what is Canada in this literature? And um, here we try to think a little bit about that. And one of the things that Amelie and I do in our own uh, chapter, thinking about qualitative literature, is to really show, uh, with Laurie Beeman, is to really show the shift actually in some of that literature and how the category of Canada is examined. And I think now we're starting to see a lot more critical scholarship about the multicultural model, about um, the way that religious minorities figure and so on. So that's one piece. And another piece in thinking about the Canadian part is to know a little bit about, you know, what is Islam and who are Muslims in Canada? And then to think about what has not been examined, right? And so definitely a big lacuna has been the historical piece. There has not been that much historical work that has been undertaken. And so it's quite, it's quite something, right? We don't know that much about the first, you know, the early slave trade and black Muslims. Um, there has been very little with the exception of Afua Cooper's work, very little written on that topic, for example. Other work like Sufism, um, really excited about your book, Shabana, that's going to come out soon. That's going to be a huge contribution. Um, but Mina Sharifi Funk and um, Jason um, Idris Sparks, they write a, a piece in the volume that really talks about Sufism in Canada. So we know that uh, obviously Sufis are in Canada, but there has been very little scholarship about it. So I think that maybe scholars outside of Canada will see resonances with um, gaps that they know exist in the literature and, um, and see those in our book as well. Fantastic. Melanie, did you want to add anything or? See, the, the, the problem that I face working with two brilliant women, Shana, is that when you come third, there's often very little to add. So, <laughs> no, and I, I think the only comment I have, and it's more, of a, it's more of a summary really, is to say 
there are there are larger theoretical issues that we address that really have really important cross-cutting um, lessons here uh, internationally. Um, and then there are some pieces that are very specifically tailored to to Canada. So so I think it's it does a, it it does some some work in all of those spheres. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to think about it, um, especially in terms of the way that the book is sectioned off in four different sections, um, the interviews that are featured. I really love that. And I would love to hear about maybe how that idea came up to interview um, um, senior scholars or um, important figures in kind of this landscape of scholarship. Um, so maybe we could get into some of the sections. So we could start with section one. And section one is about knowledge production. Um, you have some great interviews here um, with some, you know, with um, some important scholars. Um, I really was drawn to Aaron Hughes's uh, contribution here. Um, and I think it's a really important one, I think, in terms of stating some of the politics behind the production of knowledge that we don't often think about or actually uh, reflect on. So I wonder, I mean, I'm highlighting this one chapter, but there's so many um, different chapters in this section, but if somebody wants to discuss what Aaron Hughes is doing, um, and um, SHRC is uh, this funding organization that we have in, in Canada that funds um, federally funds a lot of projects from PhD students to master's students to, to um, having chairs at institutions that actually produce the knowledge. So just as a preface to some of our international listeners as well. But, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I was really thrilled when um, Aaron agreed to write this chapter. Um, and I think he's the right person to do it for a number of reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's really fascinating, right? Obviously, funding is not apolitical. And um, he really makes a case and shows how certain projects have been funded. We don't know of course, which projects have not been funded, but we, it's kind of an imaginative, you know, imaginary exercise. Um, and definitely, you know, definitely check it out, that chapter, but just a, a little spoiler, I mean, it, it's really interesting to see, right, the, the kind of interest in questions of integration or problematic Islam on Sharia and on um, hijabs and uh, these kinds of projects, and of, of which I also have been part, right? So I... Um, I include myself. I include myself in that uh, in that group of scholars who have received this kind of funding. Uh, you go for it. Yeah. Yeah. No. I just um, maybe uh, a bit on um, the the um, the the section generally. The section really was about thinking about these questions more theoretically and so hopefully it's a uh, it's a uh, it's an introduction it's it lays down the big ideas for the rest of the book um and the interviews were also um so what we do in the book is we have chapters which are normal scholarly chapters uh uh and then we have interviews um and we and at the end of each sections uh, and we chose to interview people that can speak to the big questions of each of the sections um, and so here um, we in that uh, big in that at the end of that section we interview Enver Emin and Lara Deeb and actually we're not doing the interviews what was really great about the project is we have graduate students uh, that are working in the field that uh, have done the interviews and have done the research and engage with these senior scholars um, and it was really the idea of getting um, interviewing people that could speak to the themes of each section, uh, but making the teams more accessible to, uh, you know, undergraduate uh, or policymakers through the interviews. So the interviews are made 
in a center were designed to make these questions more accessible. Uh, and hopefully the book then becomes more accessible beyond, uh, you know, a specialist uh, on these questions. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and just to build on that, to Emily's uh, a point, they're, and they're not only scholars, they also, some of them are also scholar activists and other people in our in our society that are producing knowledge uh, about Islam uh, in Canada and elsewhere. And, and I think the, the, you know, what's what's unique about this book is that it's on one hand more accessible, but it also brings in different voices, um, both as as interviewee but also as creator of knowledge in terms of our graduate students that were involved in this so it really we tried to be as as broad and inclusive as possible and i think it's a fantastic idea and also um opportunity to have uh, grad students in conversation with these scholars um and not only for the the opportunity for building relationships, but just to kind of build continuity, right, in terms of uh, building the next generation of scholars as well. So I did find that to be quite, I don't know, lovely. I don't know if that's the right word to say, but it was, yeah. Jennifer? Yeah. I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you noticed that, Shavana. I, I mean, one of the things here, I'm really grateful to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council because, because we did have some funding, we were able to pay the students to really do in-depth um, deep dives into these scholars. So I think it was also useful because they generated in that, in doing that kind of bibliographical and scholarly deep dive their own questions to pose to these scholars and uh, with our kind of supervision. Um, so it was a kind of more long drawn out process, but I feel like it was a real pedagogical process um, for me too in conversation with those students. And um, so it, it's the thing I'm actually most proud of in this volume. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, a unique feature of it. And I think it would be pedagogically useful for individuals in the classroom. But I think it also, um, which section three kind of talks about, um, shows how people's stories and humanity matter and, and kind of just the production of knowledge, right? That it's just um, human beings doing this work and there's that's important to recon uh, recognize. Um, I wonder if we could shift to section two. Um, and I know um, Jennifer and Emily, you have a chapter there with Laurie Beeman, which I think is a fantastic chapter that surveys um, different qualitative um, uh, studies out there. And then there's a section on Sufism. Um, um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about maybe your chapter contribution um, in that and what the overall aims of that section generally are. Emily? Yeah, uh, so uh, this, so, so, so section two is, so you have section one is the theory and section two comes and it's more empirical. And, and the idea with section two was really to sort of um, chart uh, what has had been written or what has been written on Islam and Muslims in Canada today and to, to ask questions around that. So it's more, it's based on the empirics, still driven by theoretical question, but really based on the empirics. Uh, and so most of the contribution, uh, uh, all the contribution in that part do that in different ways. Um, and so in our chapter, what we try to do is, is chart the trend in the literature uh, from uh, the 1970s to 2017. Uh, and we, uh, and so we analyze the different trends and, and, uh, and what were the what has been the focus and things that have not been discussed uh, and uh, and so we do that 
through a systematic analysis of the literature. Um, and it was, it was a tedious exercise, uh, now that I remember, but I think uh, hopefully it's a helpful and useful exercise of thinking about these questions. Um, and then we have other uh, chapters. Uh, we have one uh, that I, I want to fly that I find really interesting by Paul Ede, where he really looks at um, the shift that has happened uh, and how we, how scholars discuss, discuss uh, Muslims in Canada and how before 2000, we, the focus was mainly on, on ethnicity uh, and how it became more religious. And what that does for people, not only for research, but also in the, the impact this has on the life of individuals and on the questions we ask as scholars. And I think that's really interesting. And, and maybe coming back to your first question of the podcast, I think hopefully, I think it's something that might resonate with scholars outside of Canada, this shift and, and the way po politics have, has influenced this shift. Uh, yeah. I would just add, you know, in our chapter where we do this qualitative, this kind of quantitative analysis of qualitative data, right? Um, and what we tried to do was really kind of show our math equation, like not just show the answers, but show all of the work, right? And so since then, as often happens in publication, right, I've read even yesterday um, some fabulous work by a scholar who we did not include there, right? Because it was just missing in the bibliography. So I apologize to anyone reading whose work was not included there, but we really see this as a snapshot, right? And so this is what was kind of being written in that period. And we have some kind of projections about where research could go, but, um, but we're really kind of looking at a moment in time. And also from our own positionalities, and I'm sure we'll get to that soon. But um, the other piece I wanted to really highlight is one by Sadaf Ahmed, who's um, a like really amazing graduate student at University of Toronto. And she really posits, I think, really fascinatingly and provocatively, like, let's call for a hijab ban. There's been too much written now about the hijab. And what, what does that, all of that research and fetishization in its own part do to discourses on hijab? as it tries to counter the Orientalist and anti-Muslim kind of perspective, how does it also participate in it? And uh, I think it's a really provocative and helpful question. Yeah, her chapter and the discussion of hypervisibility of the hijab in the actual scholarship and the statistics that she provided in that chapter were, I mean, not shocking, but also when it's in front of you that, that way, you are kind of provoked. Um, and it's a very important contribution, which also, I think, contrasts with your chapter in terms of how the types of scholarship that there are. You highlighted there's not a lot of textual or theological studies as much as there are these broader questions from sociological angles about issues of assimilation or issues of integration and multiculturalism. Um, and um, yeah, so I think some of the gaps that are being highlighted in this section are so important. And as Amelie said, that it's not something that's applicable just for the context of Canada, but broadly, I think anybody who's studying contemporary Islam to think about like what types of scholarship and approaches people take and maybe differences between thinking about Islamophobia versus anti-Muslim racism and things like that, right? Um, so I do definitely think that this is this um, the interventions made in these um, these chapters are so important. Yeah, I would just quickly say just the two interviews in this chapter. One is with Kareem Kareem, and he really gives an overview of his um, all of his contributions to thinking about. Um, Ismaili Canadians and um, how important that is and often overlooked. And then another interview with Abdi Kazemapur, 
and his really important work thinking about quantitative work. And so, and even in that quantitative work, which is so small in the corpus, how much of it is really focused on demographic questions, which also kind of poses political questions about why are we always counting? Like what's this obsession with counting? Um, and, and not other kinds of demographic questions. So uh, around unemployment or, or marginalization or Islamophobia and so on. Um, yeah, no, and I think I just wanted maybe to um, uh, build on what Jennifer was saying previously. Um, so, so our chapter is a snapshot, really looks at, uh, at the literature until 2017. And I think what's interesting is in the last five years, uh, so, and we highlight gaps in the literature or gaps that from what we the, the literature we've gathered. Uh, but in the past five years, we've seen a lot of work that have tried to start uh, tackling some of those gaps, especially around the questions, the relationship between Islamophobia and anti, anti-Muslim racism and, 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 and have, have been started to think about these questions. And so we're really, we're really excited by the scholarship. And uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, we're thinking and discussing, we're like, it would be really interesting to do another snapshot um, in 10 years to see how how that how the literature has evolved and 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 what what is now more visible and what still remains invisible so so yeah just keep in mind that it's it's a snapshot and, and changes with time and with politics yeah melanie and all of these questions are not just questions we pose to scholarship about Islam in Canada, of course, right? These are all questions that have global resonance. And so in some sense, again, we, we are on that. Um, we are in the, the, the global, but we're also in uh, the, the Canadian scene in, in some sense. Right. Yeah, it's so hard when you're talking about Canada to make it both relevant, you know, both universal in particular, because, you know, I think as Canadian scholars, we're located and based here in whatever geography, however we think of geography. Um, but it's also interesting to say that the relevancy needs to be universal in order for it to be valid, which I think is itself like the problematic of like doing or studying Islam in Canada. At least that's been my own experience. Um, and so recognizing that tension in our conversation shows perhaps that um, there's a particular monopoly on scholarship and contemporary Islam in other regions that is maybe not held. But what is beautiful is I think with importantly with works like this, we're showcasing that actually no, the work is there and we just need to pay attention to it and have those conversations, you know, with whoever's having those conversations, right? Sorry, that, that was just a little diatribe. <laughs> but yeah, I don't mean to make the need for comparison, but I think it's also like there's something um, implicit or explicit going on, which is interesting to reflect on. Um, the next section is on positionality and wow what a um, what an intense section and I think what a wonderful group of scholars that have really contributed um at you know Rachel Brown Hisham like there's just and I think what's fascinating is how um vulnerable and transparent these scholars were unwilling to share with their methodological process sharing their field notes um and just I could imagine such a great utility in terms of using these chapters and methods courses for for students who are thinking about how to do ethnographic studies or any kind of methodology so I don't know if you want to generally reflect on positionality because I'm sure you all have these reflections in some capacity in the scholarship that you do and a lot of it comes up in different ways throughout the chapter and you're reflecting on who you are as human beings doing this scholarship, or I don't know if there's any particular sections, like maybe the interview with that Yasmin Zin that you want to highlight, um, but there's just so, it's just such a rich section. I think all of them are, but I was really compelled by this section, I think, just because of the, the vulnerability and 
kind of proximity and intimacy that was revealed, which is quite powerful. Yeah. Jennifer? Yeah, I'm really grateful here. We had this, I think, really powerful workshop before we launched into this volume. And one of the things that we did in that workshop was try to imagine it not as kind of a traditional one where everyone shows up with their paper and reads it. Um, But we circulated a number of questions to people. And then we just asked them to think on those questions and then show up at the workshop. And what was really amazing was, um, you know, these scholars, well, maybe just speaking for myself, right? It's not easy to just show up um, and then hang out and and talk off the cuff, right? Um, And they really did. And I, I feel that that kind of experience really led itself to the kind of writing that we see in the volume. So I'm really, I'm also really proud of this section and the kind of risks, I think you're right, that some of these scholars take and and then how important these questions are. And we don't all agree. And we didn't all agree at the workshop either about who gets to speak for Islam. What does it mean? Um, In this case, all three of us are white um, and all three of us identify as non-Muslim. What does that mean, right, for a volume? Is that okay? Um, these kinds of questions, I think, are important, and we didn't want to shy away from them. And what I'm really proud of is that in the, the conference or in the workshop, we we had a very, I think, productive and respectful conversation where we didn't really shy away from those questions. And I think that that is visible in the product afterwards, that we're not really seeking to answer that question, but we don't want to shy away from it either. Fantastic. Yeah. Emily? Yeah, no, and I think this question generally, uh, this section generally actually um, does a very good job at thinking about the insider-outsider debate, uh, but think, but about blurring also the complexity of that dichotomy. And uh, so, so Brown, for instance, speaks about it in her chapter and speaks it in terms of, 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 her, of her gender as well as her uh, uh, whiteness. But so she speaks about it in diff- with different... T- that, that there's actually a complexity to the insider-outsider, um, which goes with the complexity of identity. Um, and I think all the different chapter does it. Even, um, so, uh, for instance, Roshan Jahangir or Hisham Tiflati, they, they use the auto, autoethnography method in their chapter to reflect on their identities um, uh, as insiders, but they also show how there might be insiders in some in some ways, but sometimes they're also considered as outsiders. And so, so, so how that actually unfolds in very complex ways and affects uh, uh, what, uh, as researchers, we're able to write about how we live it and how we see it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I think this is also a section that I, that I'm proud of. And, and I think you're right about the, how, how it becomes about, um, how scholars were ready to be vulnerable. Um, and that perhaps makes it, uh, that that's what makes it strength in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and to add to that and, and build on it, that the complexity of the insider outsider, um, the complexity of, of identity is a really important one. And all of them have their internal dynamics in the field, or as we approach a different type of a, a different types of methodologies, and I think that's really important. And I, and I think what we're trying to show here is 
exactly that complexity. So there isn't a one size fits all, you know, approach to the study of Islam. It has to be diverse. It has to be thoughtful. And I think, um, you know, if, if, if I hope that, uh, you know, your, your listeners take anything away from, from the co- this particular conversation is that that diversity should be respected, right? And fostered uh, thought, that thoughtful approach to, to the study of Islam. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and i would imagine a section like this is really meaningful to a lot of young grad students who are doing this type of work to figure out and to acknowledge that it's okay to for it not to be clear and it's okay for it to be messy um, and it's okay to um, have these struggles so i think that kind of visibility and scholarship is also very affirming for for like scholars who are coming up now and negotiating all these identity politics and their own positionalities so yeah a fantastic Fantastic section. Um, the final section is shifting towards future trends, which I would love to talk about. And Melanie, you have a great chapter in this section dealing with uh, an Islamic school in, in Montreal, and there was a whole legal case around it. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, and then we could also talk a little bit broadly. Um, yeah, I would just love to hear what you what your predictions are for the future of the study of it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. So let me just say that in two sentences or less. No, um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, what I, I, I think what I what I'm trying to do in this chapter is is to really think about what we're not saying, and specifically what scholars are not saying. Right. So, in in this case, there was a, a Montreal Islamic school that was um, that was um, you know accused of having all kinds of um, misogynist and and otherwise uh, quote-unquote militaristic and, and kind of backward approaches to education pedagogy and culture and um and and this went to court and and actually uh, i talk about the legal case in the paper but um or the chapter but what's more interesting what was more interesting to me is that uh, who was who responded to the to the situation who was talking about the case at the time and who wasn't talking about the case and it turns out that almost no like there were no scholars who were talking about it who could actually contribute thoughtfully to a discussion about this and so what happened in this case you know it turned into really an us versus them and you know um, cast these people as such and cast us as this uh, within the context and my question for us as scholars is why didn't we take that up? Why didn't we talk about that? And I include myself in that. Um, you know, why didn't we contribute something to engage that conversation, that legal conversation that was happening that was then feeding into 
the law, into a, a political discussion around, you know, private Islamic education in Canada. And, and I, you know, and I, I, I kind of want to shame us all a little bit in this chapter to say, this is the kind of conversation, given the, the notoriety of this case, that we need to engage in the future. We need to be part of these conversations because gosh, evidence-based thoughtful approaches to the study of Islam are necessary and important, um, more than necessary and important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Jen? Uh, Yeah, I would just add, there's another, um, uh, there are several great chapters obviously in this section, but I just also wanted to point out one by Purindasa, which I think is a really beautiful um, ethnographic exploration about narratives and their power. Um, So I'm particularly fond of that one as an ethnographer, but also Natasha Bach's piece. I think I'm going to, I know I'm going to keep coming back to it listeners to this podcast may know about some of the controversies that have circulated around Islam and Muslims in Canada, namely um, recent legislation in the province of Quebec and elsewhere that aim to curtail visible or conspicuous religious signs. And Bakht here really, I, I think it's really fascinating, examines our charter of rights and freedoms um, with an allusion to to be or not to be, to be is uh, within our charter of rights and freedoms and um, and thinks about kind of legal cases around niqab. And so here I, I know that um, as scholars in various other locations who want to think about those questions and often point to the Canadian context as an exemplary context, um, I think that um, Bach's work really kind of challenges that and has, and I think will will be interesting for scholars, legal scholars, who want to think creatively about ways to um, counteract some of those discriminations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Emily? Uh, just to build a little bit on what uh, Jennifer just was saying uh, uh, on Bach's chapter, so, so she really, she imagines she says, okay, a lot of the cases, and that's valid, again, outside of Canada, a lot of cases, a lot of the cases uh, around uh, uh, headscarf bans or, or uh, fighting headscarf bans tend to articulate their arguments around religious freedom. And then she imagines and she says, okay, but what, what if we were going to uh, articulate them around uh, freedom of expression? What would that do? And that's really interesting because uh, it's interesting in, in, for legal scholars, but it's also interesting for us as scholars that tend to look at questions around headscarf with the lens of religion. And what were, what would what, what would that do if we would look at it as a freedom of expression? Would it open new ways of seeing things um, and of imagining? And so that's a bit what we're trying to do with that section is we're really trying to see, okay, if we ask the questions a bit differently with different angles, what then can we write about? Can we think about and how would this actually end up also having having impact in policy or or uh more generally on on how society thinks about these questions um I also wanted to highlight uh, Haltman's chapter because there she's using mixed methods. She's using qualitative and quantitative together, which is also something that's, first of all, very difficult to do and very rare. But she, but it produces new questions and new ways of thinking. And so hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully, this section also uh, for for scholars is also an eye opener for maybe new scholars working on Islam and Muslims uh, in Canada and outside of Canada to think about think outside um, the box in many ways or outside the ways we've been looking at these questions. Yeah. 
Yeah. Melanie, did you want to add something? Or? Yeah. I, I, the, yeah. So the, the future trends. So it's not so much future trends is not so much about predicting what is going to happen um, in the study of Islam in the future. It's more about how, what would happen if we thought differently. Right. So that's really what we're posing um, in this in this piece. And, you know, and, and and we do that from a methodological perspective. We do that from a legal perspective. You know, we're trying to crisscross knowledge systems. And I think the interview with Catherine Bullock is really important because here um, what we're really saying here is. The activist scholarly path is also a really important one to recognize and to understand and to hold up as a system of knowledge as well. And so, um, so I kind of piece of this as well. Great. Yeah. I mean, do you have any reflections of where you see um, like some trajectories? You, you spent a lot of time working on this. Um, um, it's you provided as a snapshot. And, and so you must also it must have been quite meta to be providing a snapshot, but also seeing trajectories of scholarship, as you were saying, you kind of stopped in 2017. And in the last five years, so much has happened. And, um, and there's a lot of students writing dissertations and things like that. Do you have a personal sense of where you would like, um, you know, to see um, some uh shifts or realignments um, as kind of like a continuity of this of this final section um Jennifer yeah absolutely well I know like just speaking for myself this meta thinking as you're saying it's been really generative um Amelia and I with with one of our contributors Anver Eman have thought about this what we're calling a Muslims in Canada archive. Mm-hmm. So it's really like creating an archive, which um, I've also taken up here in my own institution for Muslims in Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm-hmm. So establishing kind of a historical record with which then we can think about history, right? And so it's kind of like three steps back, I guess, from the historical work that needs to be done is actually gathering and thinking about those archival records. So that's one piece. And I, I know also that, um, how important it is in this moment, maybe in Canada, where we're seeing the rise of visibility of white supremacy, um, other kinds of thinking around Canada as a nation state, as a white settler state, um, and thinking through those kinds of questions vis-a-vis Muslim life in Canada as well. So I anticipate that many scholars are gonna be taking up those lines of questions or hope that they do. I'll just, I think I'll just, just, I think Jennifer said it uh, very well. It, uh, but I think that what I'm seeing already now in, in new scholarship and in dissertation is really this, this idea of thinking about uh, questions around Islamophobia, but also clearly with a critical race uh, approach um, and uh, and thinking theoretically of what that means. Because I think it was before we were already, we, there was work on that, but now it's really theoretically and conceptualizing these these concepts that's starting to be done by new scholars, and this is very promising and 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 uh, and, and really interesting. Uh, and it's also related to the moment we're in, uh, the political moment. Uh, so it's a reflection of the political moment. But that new scholarship uh, wasn't it wasn't as developed previously, uh, and and it's being developed now by new scholars. So I'm really looking forward to reading uh, reading that work and thinking with them. And, and through their work on those questions. Yeah. 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 I, and I think what, what I'm seeing so far, um, they're thinking a lot about the effects of certain policies. So they're getting away from questions around 
uh, veil and veiling, etc., which I think was is a deep emphasis, right? If you look at the bibliography, but really looking at the effects of certain policies and laws now on people's everyday realities and 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 the movement. Um, and so I I think that's going to be very rich. I think that's going to be very interesting work. And and so the the and the way that that's going to be. Um, absorbed and fostered is going to be really interesting to to watch and be a part of. Mm, yeah, it is. It's, I think it's fascinating to think of the, the future trajectories of the things that people are doing. And um, I think, yeah, even as your um, the chapters have highlighted, the pivot towards thinking very intentionally about race is important, which has also prompted um, uh, reflection in the past and thinking about Black Islam in Canada, which, you know, I'm sure the archive exists. I know it does. It's just a matter of, I think, scholars intentionally going into the archives and looking for those things specifically, right? And I think that would, yeah, it's fantastic to see what um, new generation of scholars will be doing and asking those important questions, but also taking scholarship or theoretical works that are happening in other fields and bringing it into kind of thinking about Islam in Canada, right? And I see that in terms of the conversation, in terms of future trends, like how can we rethink this question in a different way, right? What kind of tools and mechanisms can we utilize it already exists right um and i think that's really really exciting that's fantastic um i have a bit of a different question for you all um i'm sure there's many folks out there who may be embarking on editing volumes together you three have a fantastic relationship and seem to like each other and so i want to know i mean do you have any advice for folks who are thinking hey i'm gonna edit a project usually you know folks say don't do it because it's a lot of work and you have committed a lot to this but i mean the fruits of the labor is that you've done something amazing and a huge service. So, I mean, what are the do's and don'ts, I guess, of editing a project together, holding a workshop together, writing an amazing, you know, collaborating on an amazing volume together? Do you have any advice for listeners? You're all smiling. So. Yeah, yeah, we're smiling. Uh, probably, yeah, just choose your, your collaborators wisely. Um, I'm sure your listeners know, right? Even from group projects in elementary school, some of them work better than others. Um, and I know for me, like one of the elements of this book that I think tied us together is also our, our deep commitment and um, longstanding work in this area, but also just the patience it took because, um, you know, part of this, the writing kind of took place before the pandemic, but there's certainly ways in which all of us have been affected by the pandemic, everyone in the volume. And so um, it just, it, when, when I think that some of the, the writing here was written in 2017, um, you know, it's, it's been a very long journey um, through peer review, <laughs> through uh, publication and everything. So it's just kind of holding the course. And I'm really grateful to, I think we have 20, 21, 22 chapters here. It's a lot of people to marshal and, um, and everyone was really committed to the project. So really grateful for that. So I don't know if that's advice, but yeah, um, yeah, it, it worked out. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. To echo, um, so it's it's in terms of the the leadership between the three of us, choose wisely. I feel I certainly did, and I I am I was really enriched by this process. And it's you know as as you know we started in 2016, and you know we're now in 2022. So, uh, you know, we're, it's six years in. And so for six years, I feel that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be in conversation, um, certainly with um, my co-editors, um, 
but and also the 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 other contributors but on the everyday of course it was the three of us that were you know organizing um pivoting <laughs> um you know trying to find funding for different aspects of the editorial process and uh i am just i'm so i feel so grateful because it really really matters who you work with and uh both on a technical level but all on um, and and so I just feel very grateful that I've had these six years and I hope to have other projects with both um, in the future because it, it really has been enriching for me um, to, to work with both of them. So I, I, they've taught me so much. So just a little thank you and high five to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Emily? Yeah, no, I, I think I just, I'm, I'm going to reiterate what everyone said, but uh, I think it's a, I mean, if you choose wisely, collaboration for me is amazing because you learn from others. I mean, I mean, you first of all, you have a you're not you're not by yourself with your project, lonely, becoming crazy because you're doing all this research and you don't and you don't know. You know, you have a group of of peer, and you can actually uh, with whom you can speak to and and share things. So that's really good. But then you also learn, and you also learn. I think in this project, for instance, we supervise students together, and I learned. I learned from Melanie. I learned from Jennifer on how to how they were supervising students and how to supervise and how to to help students grow through the volume and things like that things that i didn't really know and haven't you know you're not necessarily this is not something something you you are necessarily taught about so so it was um it was uh that was really a great piece that i think uh collaboration uh, really if you choose wisely makes it really worthwhile you also learn i mean we all come from similar but a bit different disciplines so you also learn the different uh, type, the styles of disciplines. Um, and that's been uh, helpful as well. The other thing is the piece of advice is just that it's patient, you need patience. And I, I, and here again, I'm grateful for all the people that collaborated, that they have, they stayed with us because it took so, it took a very long time. And it was, was also long because the book is, is a big one. And so to get reviews for, for that type of book and to get people that have time to review, uh, took a very long time. So, so, um, Patience uh, and perseverance is key, but uh, but if you choose wisely, it's it works. Yeah. One contributor I will not name. We actually got his author agreement. We tracked him down. He was driving across Canada. And he was at a gas station in Saskatchewan when he finally submitted it. Right. So we were like we were dogged. We we got everyone. Uh, we got it all done, and um, and yeah. So it's a really trans Canada edited volume. I love that. That's amazing. That's like a Canadian story. <laughs> I, that's really cool. Um, I mean, it, was, it really is a testament to the labor and the commitment that you had for this topic and for this project. Um, but also, I think what as a reader, when I read it, I felt like, oh, I have a community. Like I didn't, you know, I think as a scholar who works on Islam and Muslims in Canada, I don't often think that there's like a real community because we're all kind of all over the place and there might not always be spaces where we gather. And so I think looking through the table of contents, I it was a good reminder that they do exist and so especially now when networking and conferencing is not as possible I think it's helpful for folks um, especially PhD students grad students coming up to know that there are folks and this would serve as a resource in that way that if you need to find people you could kind of start here right um, which I think is great yeah um, so as we're wrapping up I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention I know it's 
it's a huge volume. There's no way we were able to get to all of it. And hopefully this has enticed our list, listeners to pick up the volume. But are there any final thoughts you want to get across before we say goodbye? Jennifer, yeah. I'll just, yeah, I'll just really quickly um, do a shout out to the group of folks who are organizing CASM. It's mm-hmm. the Canadian Association for the Study of Islam, I think, and Muslims in Canada. Or anyway, we'll have to look up the acronym, but um, that did not exist, right, back when we were first putting together this bibliography. And um, so to me, it's really exciting and a new, new moment for the study of Islam um, and of Muslims in Canada. So I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. Yeah. Emily? Yeah, and I think it's um, one of the reasons we were able to do this volume is also because the field of Muslims and Islam or people working on these questions in Canada is still rather small. So it, it's small, but, you know, it's growing. And so that's one of the reasons we were able to do this book. And I think uh, Kazim uh, probably will also participate to gathering these scholars and creating a community. Uh, so there is a, a community. Uh, and, and I think we ha- for, uh, because it's small, uh, it's a chance for it to be maybe tighter and for all of us to, to know each other, uh, which comes out mm-hmm. in this volume, but hopefully will come out as well in other initiatives uh, afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I think this leads us actually back to the start of the interview, which is why we all why we started this, why, why we were part of this kind of, what, we, what may become a movement. It looks like it, it, it is becoming a movement that we do, it is important to think about um, how Islam um, and, and Muslims um, are framed by the, the domestic context and nationalism in all of its contested ways. And so, the the you know just a few years ago in 2016 you know this idea of community um didn't didn't really exist in the study of islam and muslims in canada and um jennifer and i started a a list of 350 um scholars working on islam in canada so that we can have those um challenging good discussions uh about this field um and to you know make sure that we incorporate um those diverse diverse voices that are working in this field Mm -hmm. yeah it is wonderful to see a lot of these shifts yeah absolutely um are there any projects we can expect from you from the future that's you know continuing any of this is there going to be a volume two like what's 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 coming down the (laughs) pipeline either individually (laughs) or collaboratively you're like no (laughs) (laughs) of course you should celebrate this first before you think there's things you're working on that our listeners might want to know about so jen uh, jennifer do you have something or anything that you're working on um, yeah, thanks for asking, Shivana. That's kind. Um, yeah, so I'm just uh, working on finishing a book on a different ethnographic project looking at um, transnationalism and secularism in France and Canada with attention to Algerian uh, experience, so many of whom are Muslim. Um, and yeah, just thinking more about, you know, the secular and um, and so on. But um, I still do a lot of teaching and I guess you could say activist work related to Islamophobia and and Muslim life in Canada. So um, definitely keeping my foot in that uh, in that scholarship and activist work as well. Fantastic. Yeah, Emily. Uh, yeah. So so we. Um, I think uh, my my work has been 
and is now becoming more and more about thinking about uh, the politics of secularism and it has always been and and I think now I'm I'm going toward that even more uh so we have uh, uh we uh, Jennifer and myself are starting a, a new project where we want to think about the politics of secularism and questions around race uh, in Quebec so so we'll uh, we'll be thinking about that um and then uh, volume two uh I'm not I don't know about that, but I think the more the more um, uh, after this discussion and other discussions we had since the book came out, the more I think it would be really important and interesting uh, to do another snapshot in maybe 10 or 15 years. So whether it's us that do it or another group of scholars, maybe, but I think this these snapshots are important, not only for scholars in the field, but also for, for, for scholars, I don't know, in 100 years that want to see snapshots. I think this hopefully will be really, will be really helpful. So, so this is a project that, that should happen, whether it's us or others, I don't know, but yes, yeah. Fantastic. And Melanie, what are you, what are you working on? Um, and I'm actually just starting on a big project um, that uh, once this podcast is released will have been announced, I think. Um, and it is, it is the university sector response to the crisis in Afghanistan. And uh, we are, I'm working with a, with a team of scholars at risk, human rights defenders, and activists and residents to think and rethink about integration, welcome, and knowledge preservation in, in contexts of crisis. And so that's what I'll be focusing very intensely on over the next few years, um, in addition to my to my own work on, um, on Muslim youth. So fantastic. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I forgot to mention one thing. I didn't know if somebody wanted to speak to the cover, the beautiful art that's on the cover. I should have highlighted that from the yes. beginning, but as I'm like getting ready to say goodbye, I'm like, oh no, I forgot this one important thing. Um, cause I think it's beautiful. And I think the reason it's chosen is really in line with the broader um, aims of the project. So perhaps that's a good way to end our conversation today. Um, so yeah. Um, who would like to, um, say something? I'm, I don't know. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to go? <laughs> go for it. So thanks for that question, uh, Shabana, and thanks for noticing the cover. We're really proud of it. Uh, we, you know, it's, I, I do think covers are important. And so we were really thrilled what we decided to do amongst the three of us. And I think it was Melanie who actually found this artist um, was to just kind of take a look by Google search or by through networks of um, young, young uh, artists, not even young, but artists in Canada who, um, who do something related to Islam or Muslims in Canada. So we had, we really took our time to kind of choose this person. And we came across um, Imam Sattar, who's an Ottawa-based calligrapher, um, who's a really kind of an emerging artist. And what was really fun about it was that um, she would seem kind of surprised uh, that we reached out to her and was really thrilled. Um, and so... I, I hope this will give some visibility to her work and encourage your podcast listeners. She, if you just kind of go onto Instagram and write in her, her name, um, her last name is spelled S-A-T-T-A-R. You can find more of her um, calligraphic work and uh, really, uh, uh, I think, an artist to watch. Oh, that's 
that's fantastic. It's a beautiful cover. And I know University of Toronto Press often does a very great job with the cover and the production process. So this is, um, it was, it was great. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for your time. I know it's so busy. Um, most of all, congratulations to you on this fantastic project. I, I hope you're taking time to celebrate um, and thank you for the great service that you've done for, for scholars like us in Canada um, to think about Islam in, in Canada. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you very oh, much for having us. Yeah. It was a really, yeah. it was an amazing discussion. Really Absolutely. Lovely. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Shana. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for this whole series. It's just fantastic. And that was my conversation with Amelie, Jennifer, and Melanie about their new edited volume, Producing Islams in Canada. Hope you'll pick up the book. And um, thank you again for joining us for this episode. And I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, stay well and stay safe. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.